my name is uh, Peter Panarchy, hosting the Oregon Libertarian Podcast tonight. Uh, we are starting another show to talk about foreign policy on Fridays, uh, who I am. I am a Mises Caucus organizer for the Libertarian Party of Oregon and the National Caucus. I'm also the vice chair of the Libertarian Party of Oregon Public Policy Board. So we started this show to talk about foreign policy. And a common theme of this show is going to be that as a libertarian, we should realize that nearly every actor on both sides of every conflict is a state. States are evil organizations that seek to enrich their own wealth and power with no regard for the cannon fodder that fight their wars. So a common theme that I see on Twitter and other places is that we see conflicts as good versus evil, but this is almost never true. If you look at every war, whether it be the U.S. Civil War or in some cases, even the U.S. Revolutionary War, it's always multiple state actors fighting each other at the expense of the people. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start this podcast with a couple quotes that I think are going to set the, the tone for what we want to talk about here in regards to what we should have learned from World War I that will prevent World War III. So to begin, I'm going to do my worst uh, Dan Carlin uh, impression ever. I have a strong belief that there is a danger of public opinion in this country, believing that it is our duty to take everything we can to fight everybody, to make a quarrel of every dispute. It seems to me a very disingenuous doctrine, not merely because it might incite other nations against us, but it is a serious danger. Let us overtax our strength. However strong you may be, whether a man or a nation, there is a point which your strength will not go. It is madness, and it ends in ruin if you allow yourself beyond it. That was Lord Salisbury of England in 1897, accurately predicting the horror that would be the next century. So another quote here. A European war can only end in ruin of the vanquished and is scarcely less fateful commercial dislocation and exhaustion of the conquerors. Democracy is more vindictive than the cabinets. The wars of the peoples are more terrible than the wars of kings. That was Winston Churchill in 1901, one of the worst people of the 20th century that got that part right before he completely changed sides and was wrong about almost everything else. We'll probably have another episode just about how much of a piece of shit Winston Churchill was, but uh, we'll get to that. So a lot of what I'm going to cover um, in this series is going to revolve around a book that Pat Buchanan wrote called Churchill, Hitler, and the Unnecessary War. Um, Pat Buchanan was a Republican that was wrong about a lot of stuff. Um, he ran for president a couple times um, and has a lot of views the libertarians would not agree with, especially social issues. He was a Cold Warrior that was confused when the Cold War ended and NATO continued to march eastward. He accurately predicted that this would inevitably end with some sort of conflict between the West and Russia. And he was right. I think we all feel like we're barreling told toward World War III. And those with Ukraine bio picks in their bio seem to act like this is a unique situation. Russia is a unique evil we have never seen before. They must be vanquished before they take over the earth. But I might remind you that before World War I broke out, the British said the same thing about the Kaiser in Germany. They said that he planned on taking over the world, where this kind of leaves out the fact that the British had already done that. They already took over the world. World War I seems to be more about preventing Germany from taking what they had, quote unquote, rightfully stolen. 
I think we can see a lot of parallels there. So in the next episode, we're going to talk about the versions of the origins of World War One that we're supposed to believe versus what actually happened. And I think we have a lot to learn from uh, this book by Pat Buchanan and a lot to talk about in World War One in general. I see I have, I have some listeners here. Does anyone care to talk about uh, World War One and what we might or should have learned from it? I have a, uh, I have a, a problem, technical problem here. Uh, okay, sorry. Uh, so you ask if if everybody wants to call. I, I'm not uh, to 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 talk about World War One. I'm I'm interested mostly in learning. Uh, just I'm just curious about this subject. That that's all. Uh, but uh, I can give my contribution later. Maybe uh, I'm just curious about the. The subject, that's all. I don't have anything specific to say. Sure, no worries. Uh, what we're trying to talk about here is that there's a lot of things that happened in World War One that we probably should have learned. Like, I think we're all we were all taught in school that uh, it was a system of entangling alliances that caused World War One and let it. Uh, there was a an assassination in Eastern Europe. Uh, the Archduke of uh, Austria-Hungary, or sorry, the the Crown Prince, was murdered by a member of like a Serbian quote-unquote terrorist group, be that as it may, and that kind of led to the entire world going to war. And a lot of people died, millions of people. Um, the book that I'm talking about said that 20 million uh, people died during this war, and this could have been easily avoided if we had taken the right like foreign policy steps. And I think we're trying to draw parallels to what's happening right now uh, in, with Ukraine and Russia like how we can avoid this uh, drawing into an all-out war. Yeah, yes, yes, we can uh, we can learn from history for, to to avoid repeat future mistakes, but that's that's a good point. We never learn from history, so. Yeah, I guess that's my hope. I mean, there's a lot of uh, parallels. Um I remember just reading in this book and other places about how, like, there was a secret military alliance, for instance, between uh, England and France that Germany was not aware of, like, when this war broke out. And they were suddenly surprised when they realized that we, they were at war with uh, England, for instance. And it seems like this habit of encircling countries with military alliances and causing them to reach out to other countries to form their own military alliances has a, a bad precedent. I think the same thing is happening right now, for instance, with the, uh, Russia and China. I mean, I think those two groups are being pushed together. Yes. So, yes. Well, I, go ahead. I uh, just said yes, yes. So I guess what this series is going to be about is like how we should have like learned from the prior mistakes of our ancestors, especially uh, people like Winston Churchill, who, uh, another episode will be about how I think he was one of the worst people of the 20th century. <laughs> yes, exactly. He was, uh, before he was prime minister, actually in World War Two, he, he had a secret uh, plan to, at the very end of World War Two, uh, the, the, 
the British have a secret plan to to join. Uh, to, I mean, the British and the Americans were allies, of course, but they are, they had a secret plan to join, uh, and they were fighting Nazi Germany. They have a secret plan to join the Germans to fight the Russians, right uh, right at the end of World War Two. Yeah, their, their goal was to eliminate the Soviet Union. That's their. They didn't care. So the, the, the Germans are already defeated. Okay, why not just go full ahead? Yeah, I think there's a lot of wisdom there, especially if we look at how I mean, World War One was basically caused by the Franco-Prussian War of 1870, which was declared by the French, and the French lost to Alas and Lorraine. And that, and I think they were looking for a, a way to take that back. And Germany saw uh, France on one side and Russia on the other. And they saw that they had an outright military alliance. And I think that might have been the cause of the Schleifen plan. And I don't know. I, I guess when you're looking at the origins of World War One, like what you really see is a freight train that had a ton of freight on it and was trying to stop. But there was no way to stop it. And that it ended on all-out war in Europe. I mean, it's it's just really sad to see. Like, I saw, like, uh, telegrams between, like, the Kaiser of Germany and the, the King of England at the time and the, the monarch of France. They were like, hey, guys, uh, we need to stop this because if we don't, um, all of our empires are going to fall. And I think what Churchill said about uh, the wars of the people are worse than the wars of kings. He was predicting what happened like in World War II, because those were the wars of the people. Uh, we had like the communists in, uh, in Russia, and we had like the fascists in Germany, and that is basically what happened. But uh, what was, I, I don't understand what was the real reason of World War II. I mean, the, the, they killed, assassinated that, uh, that prince or king or whatever. That was like the catalyst, but the real reason was like some empire. They wanted to be like the bigger empire. I really don't understand that part. I'm trying to focus on World War One in this episode. Yeah, yeah, I'm talking about World War One. Yes, what was the reason for World War One? So they killed the, that archduke, and then yeah. they started the war. But what was the real reason for the war? I mean, in my opinion, the real reason was the military alliance between France and England and the outright military alliance between France and Russia. I mean, uh, it kind of led to an inevitability of conflict. Like the, the Serbian assassination of the Archduke was just an excuse for a conflict that had been brewing for decades. Oh, I see. Okay, okay. Okay, I'm going to put myself on the listeners because I think there was somebody trying to call. Maybe I'll let everybody, somebody else call and I'll just listen. Yeah, Pedro, one question for you before you leave. Uh, where are you calling from? Uh, uh, you mean uh, where I'm located? Uh, I mean, uh, where I am originally from or something like that? Uh, is that? I mean, I'm originally from Portugal, but I'm, I live in the United States. So. Okay, all right. Thanks for okay. providing that. Just curious on the on the context. Uh, Gregor, I yeah. saw you in the queue. I'm happy to talk to you if you want. Yes. Okay, thanks. Bye. Thanks for calling. Yeah, but I think that brings up a good point. Um, people blame the, the Serbian war on actually causing the conflict. But, I mean, uh, from everything I've read, uh, the, the Germans thought that the 
the Serbian like attack on Austria-Hungary would be re- figured out in a pretty hasty fashion. I, they just thought that that would be over very quickly and then the war would end and they were kind of astonished when the Russians started to mobilize. And the Russian mobilization is actually what actually caused the conflict to escalate and that's what caused the French to mobilize and the Schlieffen plan to actually take place. So wasn't really planning on getting into all of this in the first episode, but I mean, uh, I guess it is pretty relevant here. I mean, I think we should really draw parallels to what's happening right now, right? Uh, I mean, we've seen NATO expand eastward like since 1991, like we've seen an encircling around Russia, which is not unlike the encircling that happened around Germany. And it's, it just made conflict inevitable like, at a certain point. So I guess kind of how I said at the top, uh, we should realize that states don't have people's interests in mind. They only have their own interests. I'll pause here in case anybody else wants to jump in. Otherwise, I will probably just talk about, I guess, why I'm having this like a podcast series in the first place. Um, I'm just really afraid about World War III breaking out. I mean, I listen to the show uh, Anti-War News by Dave DeCamp every day. Shout out to him. And Scott Horton really recommended this book by Pat Buchanan, which I found very intriguing so far. Uh, and that we just we can't let this happen again, you know. Uh, if World War III does break out, it's not going to be 200, 300 million people that die like it happened in World War II. It's going to be a lot more than that. Uh, and especially if uh, China decides to get involved, and we see now that we're escalating by sending uh, tanks and armored vehicles to Ukraine. And yeah, I mean, this was never the situation that we wanted. And I really feel bad for the people in Ukraine. Like, it's, it's not their fault. Uh, they were the pawns of the American empire, which I think the Americans are really at fault for all of this, if, if you ask me. Uh, they're really like the British in the situation of World War One and World War Two, which I mean, I know they're heavily influenced by, by that. But yeah, I mean, hard to say here, but I know that recent EU report just came out about how there was no evidence that the Russians like had any involvement in Nord Stream 2 pipeline attack, which I think is really telling because I think we all saw the social media posts by the Polish and uh, specifically the Polish uh, PM. I don't remember his name saying like, thank you, USA. <laughs> and let's see, it seems clear at this point that the British uh, government was involved in the Nord Stream 2 attack. And before anybody accuses uh, me or this organization of being like Russian apologists, all I'm really saying is like all the states here like are looking at how they can take advantage of the situation and how like we can suffer. Uh, they don't care about us. They don't care about the Ukrainian people. Uh, I think America wanted this war to happen. And I think that they want to see it through to the end. And I think they want to fight to the last Ukrainian. So I disagree with you. Um, I take a little courage at the idea that America wanted this to happen. Um, I think our government wanted it to happen. Um, and just like War One, is where the subject started, you know, the governments involved 
they all thought they could win. They all thought it would be quick. And they all thought they could gain territory. And that was that was like the final throes of the old imperial age, where taking over land in order to rape the resources was the main goal of everything. I mean, that's what we saw in the previous wars. That was what we saw in the Zulu Wars and the Boer Wars and the all the other little skirmishes all during the 17th and 18th and 19th centuries. You know, that's always about territory in order to get stuff. And I personally think wars are still fought in order to get stuff. It's just not as much about land as it is about controlling access and trade routes. Um, and I do, and I'm, you know, I'm a concurrent that it is wrong. I'm just, you know, the Nord Stream pipeline, I mean, not, yeah, the Nord Stream pipeline. My thing is I have, don't have evidence. So I can't say, could we have done it? Sure. Could have, could somebody else have done it? There's lots of people who've done it. It wouldn't have been that hard. Um, and, you know, I've not seen a lot of actual real evidence of the Nord Stream pipeline, except for there was bubbles in the water. Um, yeah, I think that's a good call out. I mean, on the Nord Stream thing, we just know the Russians didn't do it, I guess, like per the EU report. And I guess we all knew that, right? Like, why would they attack their own pipeline? And, and, and there's no law. And as you pointed out, there's no logical reason for them to do that. That's that that was that is what they were fighting to control on the other end, which originates in Ukraine, in theory. Um, now, I don't disagree that the march of NATO was, you know, a major contributing factor. I really think that, again, the U.S. handled it badly. We promised we wouldn't do what we did, and we ended up doing it anyway. And Russia finally got tired of it. And at some point, as we continue to dump weapons and stuff in, they will get tired of us doing that as well. Um you know, I'm really surprised they haven't tried something now. The only thing I'm wondering is stopping them is, is that we've found out that they don't seem to be as technologically savvy and advanced and, you know, militarily together as we thought they were. I'm not saying that they're going to lose this conflict, especially if we keep dumping stuff into it. We're going to lose no matter what happens, um, you know, $100 billion later already. And literally nothing to show for it. Um, and I, it's just, I don't know. I, I'm a little bit torqued that we elected people that do this. And I think that's where the real blame lies is we keep electing the same warmongers. No, I think that's right. And I guess uh, to your point, I mean, yeah, why else like would this have happened? I mean, it's, it's a clear escalation path. I mean, I, I guess I'll push back a little bit on your your thought that the U.S. didn't want this to happen just because we have the WikiLeaks cables that were released, like a William Burns, I believe the ambassador to Russia at the time, I think is a different position now, uh, sent a cable to Condoleezza Rice that said that uh, NATO, or sorry, uh, Ukraine joining NATO is a red line for these people. Like this cannot happen. Like this in the call. Well, I didn't a, mean like that the war. government didn't want it to happen. What I meant was is that that we, the people, didn't have enough information. We didn't even care until it started. Yeah. Right? So, I mean, you know, this was all, as you pointed out, planned in the back rooms. Because I'm, I'm concurrent that we shouldn't have offered 
um, Ukraine, NATO. I don't. I thought again, it was one of those things where thought, didn't we promise them we wouldn't do that? It was scary enough that Poland got, you know, access. The only reason that happened is because Poland gained independence before the Soviet Union broke up. Um, you know, but Ukraine and all those others, they came after. They came with the breakup of the Soviet Union, and and as we as as pointed out in history, we did. At least, in you know, we didn't sign a treaty or anything, but we didn't. We did promise that we wouldn't offer NATO to those Eastern Bloc countries, and yet we did anyway. Starting with Bush and then Obama, um, you know, both of them in 2012 were talking about it when Obama was a candidate, and you know, Bush was winding up as president. Or 2008, when Bush was running up his presidency. Um. So, yeah, I do, you know, America is to blame for this. The the government of America is to blame for this very much. But I just, and what I always find fascinating is the folks that are supposed to be, who claim to have been for peace all of a sudden are all over, we can't let Russia do this. We can't let Russia do this. And it's like, I don't see how we can stop them unless we get involved in the ground war directly, which is the only next logical step. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Like when you ask these people like what the next plans are, like they have no plan. And I think the case is that the boomers that had were protesting the Vietnam War are now like a, a, like fighting for Ukraine. And I, and I think it's because uh, the Vietnam War protests were more about getting laid, whereas like being anti-Ukraine right now is a, more of a, a social hit. But I had, I had a thought here, but uh, go ahead, Gregor. Uh- yeah, I'm. I I I don't know about more about getting laid. Um, I you know they actually know that the Communist Party of of uh, um, China specifically um, and Russia both heavily involved in the anti-war movement here. Um, you know that was actually you know that was actually something that was going on that those that they they funded directly many of those anti-war movements in the 70s and 60s and 70s in order to cause, you know, problems here at home like they've done in the past and they will do in the future. Um, I guess that's a really good point, though, right? Like, you think about how there might be, like, narratives like, oh, well, the Russians are saying that the Americans, like, shouldn't do this and the Vietnamese, like, and the Chinese had, like, their own opinions about being against American involvement in Vietnam. Like, we have to separate those at a certain point. You know, like we have our own interests as Americans about like how we should feel about this war. And and I think this whole thing with like Twitter, like specifying like certain people as like, oh, this this media or this country's media, where we should realize that the New York Times or uh, the Washington Post is just American government media. We don't have that kind well, of situation. And, yeah, both the, the New York Times was big on Hitler. He thought he was a great, you know, a great leader and thought that was the best thing in the world for Germany, um, you know, back in the day. So I, there's, I, I have a lot of trouble believing anything or not believing, but being satisfied with any media organization that says that this is this person is great. I mean, uh, the president, of your, Vladimir, the president of Ukraine, um, Lazinski, is that his last name? Yeah, Vladimir Lazinski. Zelensky. Um, Zelensky. Um, he, uh, you know, he's a master at using social media to get people riled up. I mean, that's that's the one thing I've seen. And I honestly don't know if half the things I read are true. I'm, you know, the skeptic that says 
you know, this sounds like propaganda to me. <laughs> I mean, it should sound like propaganda, right? Because they say like, oh, Vladimir Zelensky is the, the beacon of freedom and democracy in Europe where he banned all opposition parties. And I've heard he's banning an entire religion as far as like anyone affiliated with the Russian Orthodox Church. And like, this is not democracy, I guess. I mean, okay, like I'm an anarchist and I'm part of the Mises Caucus, so I I don't agree with democracy like on its face, but like on, on their terms, like this doesn't seem to be what they even believe in. Right, exactly. It's not any, well, it's not any form of, of um, social political um, hierarchy that's you would call freedom loving and legitimate, at least. Um, you know, because of the things they want to, bl- you know, ban the things they want to do. Um, you know, he's riling up, Zelensky's riling up fear that he's going to throw everybody in jail who cooperated with the Russians. And it's like these people who are in the conquered areas are like, I've got to survive. <laughs> you know, how much jail time do you really want for somebody whose only, who's only goal is to make sure they can get their milk out of their cows? You know, is that cooperating with the Russians? I don't know. That sounds like you're just doing what you have to do to survive to me. Yeah, I think that's a really good point to call back to what I said earlier about how like all these almost every war is fought between two states that do not have their own best people's interests in mind. They only care about Mm -hmm. themselves and the people always suffer from war, which is why like the Libertarian Party is anti-war in general, just because we don't really care like if Russia or Ukraine has this specific part in this border region, like which like sovereignty owns, which thing, like it should be based on what the people think, I guess. And like, no one has ever like asked them. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, that's because they're told what they're supposed to think. Looks like we have another uh, Brady chat. Yeah. Brady, if you have any uh, comments, we've been talking about. What's up, dude? The best way to mitigate war is to debate between both sides, um, like a democratic debate where we democratically elect the topic of the debate, who's debating, who the moderators are, five questions from both sides, and force these people to debate in public before we ever spend a dollar on war is one thing. And one little fun layer to add on top of it is we could potentially hold this debate in front of an infrared camera uh, through an AI algorithm that is capable of detecting lies <laughs> and just have a live feed of that while they're debating. I don't know about that. An AI detector for lies. That seems like a pretty uh, subjective way to find objective truth, but... Well, we could uh, just drop the AI portion and just leave the infrared camera on. The infrared camera pretty much tells the story itself. So you could pretty much train anyone to detect lies with an infrared camera relatively easily. How does that work? Just by like eye movements or like facial expressions? I know there's like certain tells for lies, but... Yeah, blood flow to the, to the face, um, easily measured with an infrared camera. The risk of being like super hacky. Uh, where are you calling from, Brady? Planet Earth. Cool. 
Um, well, I mean, I think it maybe it goes without saying, but should just cover this. Um, Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine was evil, and I, I'm not going to say it's unprovoked because it wasn't, but it wasn't the right move to take. Um, it's like the similar situation with the Osama bin Laden and what happened with 9/11. It's like, yeah, all these attacks were evil, but if we just like blanket them all as evil and refuse to examine the reasons like why these things happened, then we refuse to learn from history. We just like they'll they'll happen again. Yep, I think Vladimir Putin could have very easily just exposed the evil global network of what's going on right now, but I think it's pretty clear that he plays a role in that network. Otherwise, he would be exposing it right now, you know. Um, and I think what they're trying to do is just, you know, use World War Three as an excuse to eliminate, I don't know, maybe 50, 70 percent of the population of humans on Earth. And this World War narrative is just uh, the excuse they're using. That's an interesting take. I mean, like just based on everything we've seen with the uh, COVID and everything else going on that the elites might actually be worried about the population and where we have enough people in order to confront like their ability to control our societies. And yeah, maybe this is all an op. Didn't think about it that way, but thanks for that, Brady. Well, um, I think at this point, I feel good about what we covered. Uh, as I said, this is the first episode of a series that's going to happen about uh, World War One and World War II uh, and what we should have learned from it, how to prevent World War III. Uh, in the next episode, we're going to talk about the real specifics about what actually led up to World War One, like the French and Russian military alliance, like the secret alliances between England and, and France and the actual assassination of the prince of Austria-Hungary, Franz Ferdinand, which made one of the worst bands of the 20th century, or sorry, 21st century. <laughs> the band sucked. But yeah, we'll talk about that. We'll talk about the, the prestige versus the real, like things what actually happened, and just like what the actual days leading up to it. Because we actually have a really good view of what the Kaiser in Germany, like the King of England, and like all their nations like felt about this and it really just feels like a steaming freight train that couldn't be stopped. Like everybody wanted their piece out of the situation. They wanted to make money off of it. And all of a sudden there was no way to stop it. And then a couple million people died. So, okay. It looks like we have another caller here before we close out. Uh, go ahead, Andrew. What's up, Oregon? Happy to be here. Hey, uh, I'm from Washington, but uh, no ill will. I'd be building Cascadia eventually. But anyways, yeah, just a quick couple of thoughts about World War One. Uh, I am glad you're bringing it up. I I missed most of this room, but just from the few minutes that I heard from you. Hold on one second. I'm going to plug in headphones. Can you hear me all right? Yeah, no worries, man. Cascadia forever. It'll happen. Right on. Like, uh, whoa. One of the biggest things that the Mises Caucus advocates is national divorce. We're going to have to break up into smaller countries, and I'm cool with partnering with Washington. Yeah. Well, right on. Um, yeah, I think um, just as far as World War One goes, what do we learn from it? I think what's really interesting 
is the stuff that we got to take a look at um, after the two Russian revolutions. Once the Bolsheviks were in power, they actually released a ton of documents uh, about World War I. And then also years after World War II, when some of the archives from Imperial Germany and et cetera opened up, we got to see similar looks. So seeing things like, uh, like notes of the Berlin Council and also the Sykes-Picot Agreement show how close-knit all of these ruling class families were in the pre-World War I era. Um, you know, the Berlin Council was basically saying, all right, we're going to colonize Africa, so why don't we be friendly about it? Who gets what? Uh, the Sykes-Picot Agreement was similar, but with parts of the Middle East. Um, and getting a window into the rationale for why they made what decisions, etc., is very illuminating. And I actually, I did study World War I a bit uh, in an international politics class called The Myth of War. And so we analyzed it from numerous different um, sort of like hypotheses. So some would have been uh, that, we that we analyzed were about the uh, sort of the psychology of the, of the various leaders that were in power during different wars. Some were avoiding the kind of great men of history uh, theory and looking at like were there actually like widespread phenomenon amongst the people that pushed for this and with World War One, I, I think what we concluded really resoundingly is that the war was going to happen really regardless of the assassination of Franz Ferdinand and that the battle lines had all been drawn up more than two decades before the outbreak of the war in the 1890s and it was really because all of these ruling families were literally interrelated um, it was about who was going to get a bigger piece of the colonial pie because the Kaiser, for instance, was not set to inherit quite so much as perhaps the French. And so the, the motivation for the European powers is pretty clear. It's about carving up the colonial pie. It becomes a little bit odd for the United States because you're like, well, the United States wasn't set to inherit anything. But actually we were. We had already positioned ourselves close enough to the British that anything that they lost to the Germans was also America could, could consider it as a loss as well. And so to stabilize the British position over their colonies, but also to wreck their financial system and insert ourselves as a, as a creditor uh, was really an ingenious um, stroke of decisions by the American ruling class. And so I think that uh, there's very similar ways to analyze the current conflict in in Ukraine. Um, and, and I don't know, you said, it sounded like you were going to wrap up, so maybe I'll join you for next time if you don't want to get too far into it. But I wonder what are your thoughts on that, and did you already cover that before I hopped in? Uh, no, go ahead, man. I mean, honestly, like I agree with everything you're saying. Next episode, we're probably going to talk about like the finer details you are just discussing, how like the Serbian assassination uh, of uh, Franz Ferdinand was just a ploy or just an excuse, I guess, rather, for the conflict that was going to happen, that was going to happen, and really, like, these European oligarchs had this planned all along. So really appreciate that analysis. Um, we're going to have another episode uh, next Friday at the same time. But, yeah, go ahead with your thoughts about how this relates to Ukraine because uh, you're kind of on a roll here. Well, thanks, man. Yeah, yeah, definitely, just to reiterate, I 100% I am convinced that the, the assassination of Franz Ferdinand was likely um, boiled over out of a, out of an organic kind of like a national 
feeling or at least feelings of independence out of the peoples of what eventually became Yugoslavia again. Uh, but they had been kind of pulled back and forth between the Turks and various other kind of mainland European empires. But certainly the, the ruling class of the various countries involved in the war were like, okay, this is a perfect pretext. Um, let's, let's set the ball rolling. But as far as how it goes today, I think we can look back um, at a number of different statements and writings, both leaked and freely published by the American and Western European ruling classes to see how there's a similar kind of um, almost inevitability it felt like to the conflict in Ukraine. And I think we don't have to go way far back to the you know, very first time that the Americans got involved, like during and after World War II with factions in Ukraine. But I think we can go back to um, Big New Brzezinski's stint as the national security advisor for um, Jimmy Carter. At that time, um, Big New Brzezinski and others, I mean, I think that there had been some similar, there's a lot of similarities between Big Brzezinski's um, strategy and Henry Kissinger's strategy. They, they view geopolitics as a global zero-sum game. And if they view it as zero-sum and there cannot be cooperation, then certain alliances that might be natural geographically or natural in response to American hegemony have to be put down. And Big was really big on there not being, and he wrote about this in his book in the 90s, The Grand Chessboard. He wrote about the necessity of preventing an alliance of shared grievances or of geographic and um, resource production sort of like necessity or smart business sense between Iran, China, and Russia. And to accomplish um, the goals of kind of putting a thumb down on Russia, it was definitely more difficult in the Soviet times when Brzezinski was around, uh, but stirring up trouble in the Caucasus and the Central Asian republics in Afghanistan was very successful. And he wrote about Ukraine. He talked about it at the same time, and he wrote about it in the 90s. He said that Ukraine is basically like the pivot point or the, the focal leverage point of all of Eurasia because of how important it is for Russia or whatever other power there is in the East. The access there to the Black Sea, um, including, you know, so the land masses of Turkey and Ukraine make up the vast majority of that, but also areas like Romania, um, Georgia, etc. It's really critical. And if you control Ukraine, you can basically put a cork in the bottle of any type of mobilization for trade or military purposes that Russia might want to mount. And similarly for China, uh, the first island chain is critical. And the only piece of the first island chain that the U.S. doesn't have complete control over still is Taiwan. So this, I think, illuminates like there's very clear cut um, battles over geostrategic areas. And then probably everyone is familiar with the oil. I don't need to go into it too much, but this has been a windfall profit for American and other oil companies having Europe kind of peeled away from Russia's energy sales. So I think there's very similar um, motivations. It's just not, they're just not formally called colonies anymore. They're not formally part of a monarchy anymore, but the underlying currents are all basically identical. Yeah, no, I agree with that completely. And it goes back to like, uh, people say like, oh, like America isn't a global empire. Well, I mean, they own a third of Syria where all the oil is. 
So I think that they probably are. And there are definitely tangential relationships between what's happening in Taiwan, which was happening in Ukraine. Like people say like, oh, we need to prevent Ukraine from being the next Taiwan, or I guess the reverse order, but they're just following the same like playbook, which I guess goes back to like, we want this war to happen. Yeah. Well, let me get out of the way. If you want to talk with Fahim, he's always excellent to speak to. Um, and I'll go to your next episode. I'll keep an eye out. And if you ever want to do a, a collaborating episode talking about Cascadia, that's a political subject that I've been invested in for a while. And I'd be curious to see how we overlap because I'm, I'm not a libertarian, but I know there are a lot of libertarians in the Northwest. And so it's good to see where we agree. Yeah, please uh, direct message us at L- at L- LPMC Oregon. Okay. LPMC Oregon. Uh, that's the Mises Caucus for Oregon. I know they're in Washington, but I would, I would love what, to on do Twitter? that. Yeah. LPMC Oregon? Yeah. All right. All right. I'll see you there. Appreciate that. Yeah, we're going to have an episode uh, next Friday, same time. Yeah, Fahim, uh, if you have anything else you want to comment on this, go ahead. So, uh, hey, uh, can you hear me? Yep. Okay. So how, how are you guys uh, aligned with uh, Scott Horton? Uh, very aligned. Uh, I guess you could say the most aligned as possible. <laughs> okay. Okay. Because he, uh, he is a true gem. And his podcast is one thing that I uh, listen to religiously. And so uh, on that uh, same uh, subject, what are your thoughts uh, or uh, of uh, the folks uh, from uh, the left and from the libertarian working uh, uh, together on uh, specifically the anti-war as well as the whole uh, uh, of spending on the Pentagon uh, is a concern because uh, I know there are uh, differences obviously on how big a social safety net should be and all in terms of libertarians and folks from the left. But at the same time, I'm like, uh, why not work uh, uh, together? Heck, even uh, on February 19th, uh, on the Rage Against uh, the War Machine. Uh, Glad you said that. Uh, yeah, Scott <laughs> is going to be on the stage with Medea and uh, Jimmy Dore and all of To me, I'm like, why, why not? I mean, and that's one thing that I have often found very uh, uh, interesting, annoying, all of the above uh, sentiments of like, why not work uh, uh, to, uh, together on uh, this uh, issue? And then after that, we can sort it out of like, who wants what type of safe, uh, safety net or who doesn't want what. Uh, those are uh, domestic uh, internal uh, issues. But on the issue of uh, war, why not? Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more. Honestly, like the reason I read I read uh, Churchill, Hitler, Hitler, and the Unnecessary War by Pat Buchanan was because Scott Horton recommended it, and yeah. Scott Horton is the foreign policy expert in the Libertarian Party, and we, yeah, we already have an ally an alliance going on with the uh, the People's Party uh, for the Rage Against War Machine, like you talked about. Um, but we are very open allying with anyone that cares about uh, war and foreign policy that is the most most important issue of our time 
So how have you uh, spoken to uh, Dan McKnight and all also or no? Uh, I know On that defend the guard. Defend the guard? Yeah. No, yeah. we're very tuned in with defend the guard. And we. Well, the reason why I was saying is that on a medium uh, like this, it, it just just a thought, it wouldn't be a bad idea if you, you guys ever got uh, someone like Dan or uh, Scott uh, for uh, uh, like an episode or so, because yeah, both of those uh, voices, like especially Scott, I mean, the guy speaks uh, as much as people on the uh, left uh, side of the political uh, spectrum talk about uh, working class uh, and all, a lot of the lingo comes out to be too, uh, um, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, academic or cerebral. But someone like Scott uh, or Dan, they speak uh, more like the working people than anybody uh, else. Uh, and so I, I and, and I'm amazed. Uh, I, I know they're busy. Scott is running like a flippant freight train uh, every uh, uh, day. But it's, it's not a bad uh, idea because people from the uh, left or right side of the political uh, spectrum, they they have a very uh, good way of uh, basically exp uh, reaching uh, across uh, the uh, aisle and making sense of like, hey, uh, we uh, are in the same boat. Uh, so, yeah, just a thought for sure. you guys. Sure, I agree with that. Let's be real, though. It's not across the aisle because there's no allies like in Washington. It's about the bottom half of the political compass. It's about yeah, the dissident true. left and the dissident right. Like the Libertarian Party and the People's Party are allies. Like we are friends now. Um, yeah. We're hosting an event in Washington, D.C. Sorry, remind me of the date, Fahim, but we are uh, doing this. Rage Against the War Machine. This is yeah. happening. We realize this is the most important issue of our time. And honestly, we have a lot of like agreements like just besides war, like on like a drug policy and yep. victimless crimes. And like we're really – we're all friends as long as it comes to like anti-authoritarianism and all that. So I'm really excited about this new allyship that, we, that we've formed. So as far as uh, this uh, Foreign Policy Friday is, is concerned, are you planning on doing it around the same time uh, for the next few weeks? Yes. Uh, this okay. is going to be a dedicated time. It's going to be Friday at 5 p.m. Uh, invite whoever you want. Excited to have a general conversation. Um, the next uh, episode, we're planning on talking about the origins of World War One, like the, getting into the specifics like uh, the secret like French and English agreements and like the Franco-Russian alliance and like the Austria-Hungary and like, the Germans and actually the, like what actually led up to it. But it might be better if we just had like a separate show just to talk about like just the, the state of the anti-war movement and like just how like we're working together so we can make that I think happen so. as well. I, I, I think that uh, would definitely be a, uh, I mean, to get a historical perspective uh, and bringing uh, to uh, light what is going on right now and making the connections, it's all uh, great, but uh, it's, it's, it would be a great idea to talk on the anti-war uh, thing because um, even I would disagree uh, a bit with what uh, uh, Gregor uh, mentioned earlier of uh, 
the uh, anti-war uh, stuff in the U.S. being uh, previously being funded by Russian and uh, Chinese because that takes away uh, the agency of the people uh, of segments in the U.S. that are truly anti-war. Uh, yeah. So, so I. So, but at the end of the day, it's like you know, my uh, it's a, a process. Uh, so let's uh, talk more on this. Yeah, super excited about that. Like, please contact us on here or at uh, at LPMC Oregon. Uh, that's our our Twitter handle for the Mises Caucus. But yeah, Twitter yeah. Twitter is uh, a mortal sin for me so i don't do twitter but we'll we'll touch base uh, i'll touch base uh, here uh, yeah we're also available at oregon lpmc at, at gmail and okay uh, the mises caucus is uh, hard not hard to find these days so we are very public about our allyship with anyone on the left that cares about war i, I saw jimmy Dore last year in portland where i live in oregon and a big fan of the guy and it's just honestly could not be more ecstatic about like us all working together about what's important. Perfect. Perfect. Well, thank you very much, Oregon. Really appreciate it. All right. Thank you so much. Um, thank you for joining everybody. Uh, this was a great first episode that I did not expect about the uh, foreign policy Fridays, but yeah, we're going to have our next episode uh, next Friday at 5 PM. Uh, talk about uh, this and I guess whatever the listeners want to talk about, but have a great night, everybody. And as Will would say, cheers. Thank you.